Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. About 10 years ago, our son Austin had a key decision he had to make. 17 years old is a tough time to make a decision that could affect the rest of your life. You don't really think that much at that moment in time about all of the implications or all the people a decision will touch. But Austin was soon to discover that. Austin's going to come up and share a bit about this decision. He was deciding about college. He had taken his dad's advice about Southwestern and Keene, Texas, and said, yeah, no. <laughs> so that was the end of that. <laughs> Even though I said, I went there, and he said, yeah, well, no. <laughs> and so he had narrowed it down to Southern in Tennessee or Walla Walla in Washington State. And honestly, he was leaning to Southern. He had had an opportunity to visit the campus. He had spoken with the dean of the School of Theology, friend of mine, classmate, Greg King. And so Southern was leading in his mind. But then there were other people that influenced and then were affected by the decision. So what happened, Austin? Yeah, that's true. You know, there had been a lot of thought that had gone into the decision, you know, many, uh, many days, many nights, just thinking about it, kind of mulling it over. But the truth is, there were some people that were both pivotal in my life in making that decision, and furthermore, people who were affected by the decision I made. First, I would say my very close friend, Jonathan Evans. Jonathan, he was right. a big part of that decision. He and I had talked about it together, and we had thought about which place we were going to go, and we had kind of wanted to go together. So he was the first person who made a big difference Jonathan, in this come, come in right this over here. You were key in this, so we're going to have you stand here where you can be seen well. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not the only one, of course. After we ended up there, there were other people. So next I would say my sister Miranda. Now, of course, she had her own decision process. She was thinking of a few different places. But the fact that I was there and John was there helped her make a decision too. This beautiful young lady is, is my daughter, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> And that's right. Well, we both, uh, Miranda and I, went to Walla Walla. So you went up there yeah. as happy, single college students. That's right. And, and we returned as nearly married. <laughs> so Miranda met someone very special. She ah. met Matt, who she married, and I met Nicole, who I married. Matthew and Nicole. That's Wonderful. right. Two more of our <laughs> children whom we dearly love. And so the people being affected by your decision... The list continues to grow. That's right. All right. Were it there can, others? There were many others. In fact, you're really? going to see a lot of my family and friends that are going to join us on stage right now. Many people whom are part of my life because of this decision. So who are these fine people? You see Heidi, Charles, Chase, Mar, Adri, and Clark, and then many who also can't be here. But all of these people, all these people are in my life. Are now life. part of your life and 
They affect you and you affect them. Right, because so of the that circle decision. grows. The circle grows. Now, you're going to see a few photos here on the screen that are going to show you even more people who were affected by that decision. The first one you're going to see is just of us, if it works. There we go. Okay. Ah, beautiful pic. Who's that couple on the right? Wow. <laughs> beautiful picture. So it's you all, Matt and Miranda, and then, of course, Nicole and I at our wedding. Beautiful. And so the circle starts small. The next picture you're going to see, uh, friends of mine. On the left, you'll see Jordan, a cousin of Nicole, a cousin-in-law of mine who is a very close friend of mine. Next to him, Brooke, another close friend of mine from Walla Walla. And then on the end, all Jeffrey, who we didn't go to college together, but our friendship certainly grew through college. All affected by your decision. Oh, mercy. And look, look at, at this. that. And in it this really picture... Grew. Almost every single person here is affected that, by that decision. There are three people in there, I would say. Jonathan, of course, my friend Matthew next to him, and Miranda, who's near the end of the girls, who would be in my wedding regardless, but everybody else up there because is up of there the college because you of that went decision. To. Wow. And did it grow from there? Oh, it continued to grow. If you look in the next picture, you'll see Nicole's extended family, all people who sure I am enough. now acquainted with and love very deeply. They're now part of our family. They're now part of our family. Beautiful. And I wouldn't know them had, had I not done that. So if we had all those people on the stage, we yeah. would have even more. We would have a Are lot. there more beyond that? Yeah, you'll see even in the next photo, all the oh, people who are attended our wedding. <laughs> and again, many, many of these people are here because of that decision. And it wasn't just that it affected your life and enlarged your life, affected them and affected you, but the same thing happened for Miranda. Yeah, of course. So Miranda, being influenced by your decision, made her own decision. But then we already mentioned that Matt came into this, and now look at all these people there. So there's our family. There's our family, and then the next one is Matt's You'll family. You'll see all of his family. That's a beautiful, who paid for that? That's a beautiful <laughs> event. Anyway, and then, and then there is all the bridal party, and yeah. again. Again, every single person in there, except for two, went to college with Miranda or me or both of us. So if we had all of these people on stage that were influenced by the decision of a 17-year-old, there'd be a lot of people on stage, and that's not even here. the end of it, because I remember a breakfast that you and I had yeah, two over in Redlands, two or three years Carolyn's ago. Carolyn's Cafe. And I, that's right. <laughs> and, I, and not a healthy place, by the way, but... Um, but God bless I was, that coffee cake, let me tell you. <laughs> I was sharing with you a, a vision yeah. that I felt the Lord was laying on my heart, our staff was affirming it, just a vision for young adults and those who are touched by modern worship and could that happen here? And I said, you know, we're looking for somebody to lead that. And you said? Well, why don't you talk to someone I know? From school. I had a friend who I'd met at Walla Walla whose name will now be familiar to pretty much everybody here. And his name, who you'll see in the next photo, is Josh Jameson. Wow. And so Josh came on board and began the work on a modern worship service. And then he brought someone with him. In the next photo, his beloved. And so they would join us on the platform here this morning. So there would be a, if they could all be here in person, a we'd, full we'd platform of people up. with these beautiful friends here. Absolutely. The decision of a 17-year-old. Wow. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being willing to come up here and be gawked at. <laughs> but don't you leave yet. Because with a decision like that that ended up having such an influence on people, I want to know how you made it. Well, that's a good question. And let me tell you, it was a process. 
So let's rewind a little bit. Like I mentioned when John first came up, he and I had spoken at some length about where I was going to go. And like you mentioned, I had really, really been leaning towards Southern. That was really the place that I wanted to go. Well, I remember one weekday evening after an orchestra rehearsal, John pulled me aside when we were done, and we had a bit of a conversation. He said to me, Austin, you know, I'd love to have you as my roommate. You're a very, very good friend of mine. I have chosen to attend Walla Walla. Mm. And I was devastated. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? I wanted to go to Southern. I thought this is where we were going to go together. And so naturally, I put the decision off as long as I possibly could mm -hmm. because I didn't want to make it. Well, it was getting closer and closer to the time where I had to decide or else I would end up at home for the year and not go to college. Mercy. Yeah, so I needed to decide. <laughs> and I remember one day in particular, I had come to the point where I was ready to decide. So I went up to my room, I shut the door, and I sat there for a little while, and I prayed. I prayed about it at some length. I asked God to please come into this decision and help me, you know, make it. I wanted to go where he wanted me to go, even if it was a place where I did not want to go nearly as much. So I prayed and I prayed, and finally I thought, okay, God, I really need you to make this decision for me. I want you to make it. So I said, let's, let's make a deal, God. Uh-oh. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to flip a coin. Oh. <laughs> and so I prayed, and I was like, Lord, I'm going to flip a coin. If it oh. lands on heads, I will go to Southern. If it lands on tails, I will go to Walla Walla. Who is your mother? <laughs> so I took that quarter. And I flipped it in the air, and it floated there for what seemed like hours on end. And I watched it rotate, and finally, after what appeared to be forever, it landed on the ground. I looked at it, and it said, tails. Oh. Walla walla. And so I said, okay, God, two out of three. <laughs> so I picked that coin right back up, and I flipped it once again. And once again, it landed on tails. And I thought, well, that's what I get for bargaining with God. It's a losing battle for me. So all of this, all these people we saw, the people up there, people who were affected. Living on a prayer and a coin flip. On a coin flip. Wow. Yeah. So 10 years later, now you're an adult, young adult. Is that the way to make a decision? Well, maybe not. <laughs> but, you know, we're here today. You are beginning this camp meeting season talking about decisions. That's what the series is going to be about over the next five weeks here. Mm -hmm. And I speak for myself when I say I am excited. I'm happy to be here because I want to sit and I want to listen and I want to learn mm. that there are perhaps better ways <laughs> to go through the process and the methodology of making decisions than just flipping a coin. Wow. Buddy, thank you so much for being willing to share that. Much appreciated. So listen to the last thing Austin said. Maybe there's a better way than flipping a coin. The truth is we face decisions every day, and not a few of them. Not a dozen, not a hundred, not a thousand. Cornell University did a study, the conclusion of which was the average human being faces 33,000 decisions a day, 200 of them having to do with food alone. <laughs> Just let that settle in. All kinds of decisions we face. In fact, think of the decisions you made just to be here this morning. 
First decision, do I hit the snooze alarm? You know, do I sleep a little more? Do I get up? Do I do scripture before phone? Do I take a shower in the morning? Do I take a shower in the... Do I take a shower? <laughs> you know, that's a decision. Um, do it. Then I get dressed. And I go to the drawer. I open the drawer. Do I wear this pair of socks, that pair of socks? Do I wear... Do I really want to look like Miguel? Do I wear socks? <laughs> All of those are decisions that we have to make. What way am I going to drive my car to church? What am I going to do with that person who cut me off on the freeway? What am I going to do with the person who greeted me? I didn't want to shake hands. They grabbed my hand. Decisions, decisions, decisions. So many of them, in fact, that Daniel Kahneman, the Israeli psychologist and economist, has been studying decision-making for about four decades now. And he says, we make decisions basically in two ways, two systems, he calls them. System one is the quick, intuitive, we would probably say gut-level decision. We make it fast, we don't worry about it, we move on. System two, he says, is the much slower, more deliberate, more thoughtful decision-making process. Clearly, if we were to try to make most of our decisions with System 2, we couldn't get out of our bedroom in the morning. It would incapacitate living life. So most of the decisions get pushed up into the System 1 area. We make them quick and we move on. But we can get in trouble if we move the wrong decisions up into System 2, into System 1, rather, and make it too quick when it requires deeper thought. By the same token, if we do too much of that down here in System 2, we don't live life. So how do we make decisions? How did the people of Scripture make decisions? Well, when you read the Bible, you find things like one way was God's voice spoke. You go here, you do that, and people simply obeyed. So then it wasn't a decision you had to struggle with. It was obedience. Another way was visions. God gave visions and spoke to prophets in visions. Another way... Uh, that people did it was signs. Take Gideon. Give me this sign, God. I want to be sure I'm doing the right thing. And then there is the casting of lots. Now, as you study, as you read about casting lots, if you're like me, you start to think, this sounds suspiciously like flipping a coin. That was used in decision-making. Our question is, how do we make our decisions? I'm going to guess that there's somebody here in the congregation this morning that's on the horns of a dilemma right now. You stand at the fork in the road. You're going to have to make a decision. It may be, should I live in this house or should I buy that house? Should I choose this career or that career? Do I marry this person or wait and maybe marry someone else? And you're asking God, please guide my decisions. I want to suggest to you, when you look at Scripture, it matters to God how we live. So we want to consider in this series entitled simply Multiple Choice the different things that might be important as we make decisions. Today we begin with option A. Option A, one word, character. Character. So to get there, we go down the road from us to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Blink, Thinking Without Thinking, begins the book with the story of what happened at the Getty Museum back in September of 1983. The Getty was approached by a person who possessed a cuirass. 
You've seen them. You may not remember it, but they are those marble sculptures, those statues, many of them from the ancient world, Greece and so forth. This particular one was of a young man, one foot kind of in front of the other, hands by his side as though he was looking and striding forward. And when they looked at this kuros, they were struck by the fact that it just was so well preserved. So if you work at a place like the Getty, you want to make sure this is authentic. So they got all the paperwork. They studied it carefully. They did some scientific studies to determine, was it the right age? Was this an authentic statue, an authentic sculpture? And everything pointed to the fact that, yes, it was. But there was a problem. It was just so perfect. How could it be this well preserved? And so they brought in some other experts. And they said, we want you to look at this. We want you to assess it. We want you to help us decide, is this authentic? We're just about to write the check. Should we write it and sign it? And the experts who came in one after another looked at it, and every one of them said, this is a fraud. This is not authentic. Now, what caught my attention was when they looked at the kuros, it was an intuitive response. As Gladwell says, Two seconds, blink, and they said, something's wrong. Something is wrong. What's curious is that those experts at that moment in time could not yet say, this is what's wrong. It took them a while to process it, to sort through what made them feel so uncomfortable. One of the experts went so far as to use the term internal revulsion. That's what he felt when he looked at it. So what caused that? Well, obviously, it was not only the days, the weeks, the months, but the years and decades before that moment that they had invested in their discipline, in their craft, to the point where they knew the true from the false. They understood it. They knew what to look for. So deeply ingrained was that into their being that they knew immediately something's off even before they knew why they felt that way. And that leads us to our option A, the word character. Character. I want to suggest that like those experts at the Getty, the important facet, one of the important facets for us in decision-making happens before we ever face the decision. It's what is going into us before that decision point comes. And that's why I've chosen the word character. So we're going to look in Scripture. There are many places, actually, that we could turn to in Scripture to a consideration of character. But I've chosen to go to the queen of the documents along these fronts, and that is to the book of Proverbs. The old wise man of Israel writing in the Proverbs about wisdom. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to suggest to you that when you're reading the book of Proverbs, if you substitute the word character every time you see the word wisdom, it probably won't lead you wrong. So we want to ask the wise man, so how do we build our character? If character helps us make the decision before we face the decision, how do we build character? 
So we go to chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with four verses that could be summarized by saying, the wise man is telling us, listen, listen, listen to what I've said and listen more to what I'm about to say. Listen, keep me, keep your focus on me, pay attention, because this will make a difference in who you are inwardly and in who you are outwardly. This will make a difference in your character. So let's notice those first four verses of introduction. Chapter 3. My child, never forget the things I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfying. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Then you will find favor with both God and people and you will earn a good reputation. Listen to what I'm saying, he says, because it will make a difference inwardly and outwardly. It will build your character. So what is he saying then? Well, that introduction is followed by four directives. These four directives help us understand how to build character. The first one. It's a very familiar passage. We've read it many times, verses 5 and 6. In this passage, he will say, building of character has to do with your relationship to the one above you. Your relationship to the one above you. So listen to verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Your relationship to the one above you. Two words are key in defining and describing what that relationship is like. The first word in each of the two couplets in the verse we read. The first one, trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The second one, seek. Seek God's will in all you do. And what will be the outcome of that? The last line, he will show you which path to take. So it's an attitude and it's an action. An attitude of trust and an action of seeking his will. It's our relationship to the one above us. I suppose it's in particular because of being on a university campus, but it's not uncommon for a student, a young person, to come to, to a pastor and to say, I'm trying to sort through God's will in my life. I'm in this relationship. Should we marry or not? I'm trying to decide, does God want me to do medical school or does he want me to do dental school? trying to determine should we live here in Southern California or should we move to and fill in the blank. What does God want me to do? I want to suggest something to you. That in Scripture, there are those times when God does say to this person, I want you to go over there, and to that person, I want you to go over there. After all, he called Abraham and told him, go. Didn't even tell him where he was going. He called Elijah repeatedly, go and do this. There are clearly those times. But there are many more circumstances where we say, God, do you want me to go here or do you want me to go there? When it's as though God says to us, you choose. That's why I gave you a mind. That's why I gave you the ability to think and to reason and to decide. You choose, and I will be with you whithersoever you go. God often gives us choices, which doesn't make it any easier. We then have to decide. 
But what is true in Scripture, clear in Scripture, is the kind of person God wants us to be. About that, there's no doubt. He calls me, he calls you to be a certain quality of person, whether we live in Southern California, whether we live in Argentina, whether we live in Russia. This is who I have called you to be. That is clear. And how do we find that? By trusting him, by seeking his will, by the attitude and the action. So I was studying this this week. My mind went back to my father. My father, who in my late adolescence, early teen years, took flying. Dad became a mission pilot. He had a passion on his heart for a mission he wanted to accomplish. When he was taking his flying lessons, I remember him bringing home this, best thing I can call it is a hood. It, it fit on him like a hat, but then it had like a duck bill, a platypus bill out here that, that went out far and it kind of dropped down on the sides the purpose of which was when a training pilot was sitting in the cockpit, it blocked out his or her view of the world around them and only allowed them to see the instrument panel in front of them. Now, the instructor was sitting right over here so that nothing went awry, but it was trying to train that pilot in learning to trust those Instruments And Dad said, sometimes that is so hard because everything within you tells you you're banking off headed this way, and so you're wanting to pull back when in doing that you're actually going to endanger the plane by going in the wrong direction. In fact, a pilot trainer that I read just this week said, I have had student pilots who are actually trying to fly the plane upside down because that's how they feel. They don't trust the instrument pen. And be very much like that with Scripture, with God's will in our lives. God, this is what I feel. Now, don't misunderstand. Sometimes that's of great value. But ultimately, we have to be willing to stand on Scripture, God's guidance in our lives. So I was thinking about that. I thought of my dad again. My dad, who went to his rest in Jesus now quite some years ago. I'll go back and visit mom and my siblings in Texas, and at times I will peruse dad's bookcases, bookshelves. Dad was a voracious reader. I'll bring some books home at different times. I've been struck as I've, as I've looked at his bookcases over the years. I've been struck by how many books are on his bookcases about Native American history, Native American life. That's very unusual. Certainly when Dad was growing up in his young adult years, that was not on the radar screen of most people in Texas, I'll guarantee you. It was not in the larger culture. The larger culture wasn't reminding us of people who have been disenfranchised or mistreated. It wasn't there. There was something that created that sensitivity in Dad toward people who had been beaten down, who had been treated unjustly, who had been marginalized. What was it? What was it that created such a passion in his heart to serve indigenous peoples that he took flying on his own dime as a pastor? 
to then be able to fly to the Huicholas of the Sierra Madre Mountains of Mexico, a tribe that at that time time had forgotten, and to take to them medical care and food, and some years later finally begin to share with them the love of Jesus. What was it that any young adult, when it was not politically correct to do so, said, these people matter to me. I want to do something. I'll tell you what it was. It was his relationship with the one above him. It was trusting him, seeking his will, reading his scripture, and coming to that place of praying, God, let my heart be broken with the things that break your heart. There's a word for that. The word is character. So we ask the wise man, how do we grow character? He says, start with your relationship to the one above you. Trust him. Seek his will. But there's a second directive. Second directive, this one starting in verse 7. In this case, it's not our relationship with the one above us, but it's our relationship with the self within us. Notice what it says, starting in verse 7. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Don't be so focused on yourself. Don't think you're all that. Don't be so focused on the mirror. Don't be so focused at getting your image out there on every social media option possible so that your life looks perfect when you know it's not. Don't be so impressed, he says, with yourself. Have a right estimate of yourself. Know that in the eyes of God, you are of inestimable value. Inestimable. But also know that in the eyes of God, you are no better than anyone else because everyone else is of inestimable value. Don't think you're all that. Think of yourself soberly, as Paul will put it in the New Testament. Honestly. Someone once asked Winston Churchill, it must be quite something to know that any hall that you show up to lecture in will be packed with people. Churchill just kind of brushed off and said, yeah, I'd be, that's flattering. He said, but I also remember that if I was being hanged, the crowd would double. <laughs> Don't think you're all that. So I'm going to tell you about the late John Stott. You've heard me talk about John Stott on different occasions. John Stott, a preeminent scholar, evangelical scholar, made a profound difference in the world, not just the Christian world. Rector of All Souls Church for 25 years, and then when he left that position, stayed on at the same church to work in a worldwide outreach and with his writing. Wrote dozens of books, commentaries. I just finished reading his commentary, expositional commentary on Acts. Just a wonderful book. So in 2005, John Stott was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people on the planet. Not in Christendom, not in evangelicalism, one of the 100 most important people on the planet. 
It was right around that time we were visiting on a number of occasions, All Souls Church. We sat right over, right about in this area, right where Tony Gutierrez was sitting is where we were sitting. And we could see something. We could see that there at All Souls, they had the platform and the pulpit up here. And then over on that part of the stage, they had two or three pews where the pastoral staff sat, where John Stott sat. Depending on which weeks we were there, sometimes the senior rector would preach, sometimes an associate. On one or two occasions, a layperson preached. And John Stott sat back there taking notes. Are you kidding me right now? He's written commentaries on this passage. One of the most influential people in the world and is listening and taking notes. There's a word for that. Character. Humility. Sober judgment. So the wise man says, do you want to grow character in your life that will empower you to make the decision before you face the decision? Humility. Because that is reflective of character. So it's about our relationship with the one above us. It's about our relationship to the self within us. But then he has the third directive. The third directive is about our relationship with those around us. So we go back to Proverbs 3. This time we begin reading in verse 9. He writes these words, "'Honor the Lord with your wealth "'and with the best part of everything you produce.'" Then he will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with good wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, when I, as a pastor and a shepherd here in this community, read that, I'm tempted to say amen. Just like Pastor Doug said this morning, we're so profoundly grateful to you for your support of our ministry here at this congregation. We can't, almost can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And my mind wants to go just there and stay there. It is valid, but don't stop there. Because right here in the book of Proverbs, go to Proverbs 14. And the wise man will say, you want to honor the Lord? Remember the poor. Proverbs 19, he says, if you lend to the poor, you lend to the Lord. Now think of the implication of that. You're not going to go back to the Lord and say, okay, give me my money back. In other words, when he says, honor the Lord with your wealth, it is not just bringing it to this storehouse. It is telling us, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the needy around you. Those who depend on others to survive. Go home this afternoon and read Isaiah 58. That could keep us all awake at night. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Don't forget the poor. I, I have to tell you about my dear friend, the late Larry Thomas. Many of you knew Larry. Larry worshiped with us on a regular basis here at this church. He also worshiped at about three or four other churches. I said, Larry, you do more worship services and more churches, more sermons than I do, and I'm a pastor. He was worshiping all over the place, but he worshiped here. Larry had a heart for the poor. 
had a passion, especially those in Ethiopia. He had all kinds of different projects that he was trying to move forward in Ethiopia, fistula surgeries and stop podoconiosis. And, and one of the ones that was the closest to his heart was restoring sight to people who had become blind because of cataracts. Larry was committed to that. He set a goal. He wanted to touch as many people as he possibly could. It was his passion. He told me sometime before his death, he told me, Randy, do you know that we have restored sight in Ethiopia to enough people that would fill your sanctuary 10 times over? 20,000 people because of the passion of one person to honor the Lord with his wealth by not forgetting the poor. The movie that they made of that is incredibly touching because you see row after row of people sitting there with the bandages on their eyes. And it's the day they're going to take the bandage off and they work their way down each row taking the bandage off and each person suddenly sees. Larry said to me one day, you know, Randy, a lot of people are asking these days, the, our generations, why didn't you do this when you were young? We're the ones that are calling you to account. He said, I think there's another question we're going to be asked in the future. We're going to be asked by future generations, why didn't you do more for the poor? That'll keep you up, friends. The wise man says, you want to build character, honor the Lord with your wealth. Yes, it's supporting the mission and the ministry of Jesus through the church and other missions. But friends, it's generosity toward those who critically need it. So we want to build character. Because character can help us make the decision before we face the decision. And the wise man suggests that that has to do with our relationship with the one above us, our relationship to the self within us, our relationship to the ones around us, and finally to our, with our relationship to the one who corrects us. The one who corrects us, which ultimately is God, but God may at times work through people. So we go back, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline. And don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So we have to ask the question, how do we respond when correction comes our way, when guidance comes our way, when we're disciplined, when we're given instruction? How do I respond to that? Am I willing to hear it? Or do I push back as though, how dare you suggest that to me? our relationship with the one who corrects us. There's not much like discipline to build character. The key word is surrender. Am I willing to surrender to that way of God's working in my life? So will you permit me one more story from Larry Thomas? Larry met more people than anybody I've ever seen. He knew all kinds of people. It just always amazed me who he had gotten to know. I've shared with some of you that a few months ago we were trying to reach the writer Philip Yancey to come and do something for LLUH. And so this was 
just shortly before Larry's death, and I contacted him and said, Larry, any, any way you could put us in touch with Philip Yancey? And I think it was the next afternoon I had an email from Philip Yancey. It's like, Larry, how do you meet these people? I was, just, I was always blown away. Well, Larry told me the story of someone named John Perfumo. John Perfumo was a member of Parliament, leading politician in the U.K., well-known in that era decades ago. And then Perfumo was caught in a torrid affair with a woman much younger, a, an actress, a model, came out on the headlines, on the newspapers, and he immediately denied it. It is not true. I never did such a thing. But within about two or three days, he came back and said, it is true. I am sorry. I was wrong. He stepped down from his position, and he went to work in a charity, which included cleaning toilets. He just disappeared from the public eye and never really returned. That became his life. Well, Larry, who met everybody, was one day in London, didn't know anybody there, and was walking down the street getting acquainted with the place, and he happened to walk by a bookstore, and he said, I looked in, and I thought, that man looks like John Perfumo. And so he went in, kind of stood by him, and you know that moment when you're trying to get up your courage to whether or not you're going to say something, and finally he got up his courage, and he said, um, you know, you look an awful lot like John Perfume. I don't know anyone here, but, but I did, I think, recognize you. And he said, well, yes, actually I am. And he said, we had a brief conversation. And I told him, you know, I'm not from here. I'm from America and don't know people in London and so on. And he said, at the end, John Perfumo said to him, when you go back to America, you tell the folk there that now you have a friend in London. There's a word for that. The word is character. Don't despise God's discipline in your life because it will grow you. It will change you. So you have to ask, what is my relationship to the one who corrects me? And so I think about I think about those experts at the Getty looking at that Kuros, having that, remember that one expert, internal revulsion and realizing that it was all the years that led up to this that allowed them to respond that way, to make the decision before they face the decision. And it strikes me, that's what I want in my life. I believe that's what you want in your life, in your decision-making, that the foundation is character. What goes into your life before you make and face the decision? Your relationship to the one above you, your relationship to the self within you, your relationship to those around you, and your relationship to the one who disciplines you, corrects you. So Austin made another decision years before the college decision. I don't think he remembers this one. He was much younger, taking music, part of a little music group that was going to perform. And so they'd gone to a location to rehearse. And after the rehearsal, you know how kids are, everybody's running and playing. And some of the kids got in trouble, did something that the location disallowed and that could have been dangerous. And I went and found him, Austin, were you part of that? 
He said, no, Daddy, I wasn't. I said, are you sure? He said, Daddy, I wanted to be. And I almost did. But then I thought about what you and Mom have said, what you've told us, and I didn't do it. He would never have been able to articulate it this way. But the truth is, he made the decision before he faced the decision. And so can you. So that's option A, character. But wait, don't make your decision quite yet. Don't check that option yet because we have options B, C, D, and all of the above to come. But I do hope you leave this place with an open heart, a deep prayer, and a willing spirit to allow God to grow character in your life. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.